Turn to the book of Luke, chapter 2. We're going to finish up a message we started last week. And then we're going to spend some time before the Lord this morning. Um, Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, same verses we studied last week. This is what we do at Woodland Hills Church. We just worship God passionately, and then we just crack open the Word and take it verse by verse. We're not interested in entertainment or eloquent speech or whatever. We just want to chew on the Word. That's our nourishment, right? And we want to be spiritually healthy and well-fed and raring to go. So uh, we just take it apart verse by verse. And more and more, we're going to be doing what we're, doing, what we're doing today, uh, what, what, what we'll be doing a little bit later on, and that is, as a congregation, spending time uh, waiting on God and going before the throne and giving God uh, the space, if you will, to move in our midst. Uh, but that's just what we do when we come together on weekends. We want to worship God, we want to uh, hear from God, and then we want to encounter God. Luke chapter 2, reading from the TNIV version. Simeon is in the temple with Mary and Joseph and perhaps some other people. And he blesses them, and he says now to Mary, he's been talking a prophetic word to both of them, but now he says specifically to Mary, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign, this child is destined to be a sign, that will be spoken against. It's not all going to be lovey-dovey, like we said last week, it, it, there's some hostility that uh, the person of Jesus Christ and the cross bring about in this world. And the process of doing that, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. He says to Mary, a soul will pierce your own soul too. Spoke about the first part of this passage last week. Now I want to chew on this phrase, a, a sword will pierce your own soul too. What does that mean? Holy Spirit, right now, infuse these words with your authority and power to change us for the kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of commentators believe that what Simeon is referring to is simply the fact that Mary's heart will be broken when she has to uh, see her son be crucified. That's the sword that Simeon was talking about. And it's possible that there's some truth in that. I'm not going to deny that. But I don't think that is the most profound application of this sentence. A sword will pierce your own soul too. It's interesting that Luke nowhere talks about Mary's emotions when it comes to the crucifixion. In fact, Mary isn't part of the crucifixion narrative. And if that's what Simeon was getting at, you would have expected Luke to have made reference back to it during the crucifixion scene. That's why I think something else is going on. It also, the idea that, that uh, uh, Simeon was referring to Mary's broken heart, it just doesn't fit the context here. The context of this word is that Simeon is, is saying that there'll be a rather painful, sword-like, dividing, piercing role of the work of Christ. And that that work will expose hearts. For Simeon to all of a sudden, out of nowhere, say, oh, and by the way, your heart's going to be broken, it doesn't fit that theme. I believe he's still talking about the work of Christ, the painful work of Christ in revealing hearts. Though he may be referring to Mary's emotional wounds when Jesus is crucified, I think the more profound application of this verse is this. The cross, Simeon is saying that the cross that exposes 
the hearts of those who rebel will also pierce the souls of those who repent and those who choose to follow Christ. Followers of Jesus are going to receive, followers of Jesus like Mary, are going to receive their own sort of piercing through the work of the cross, through the ministry of Jesus. The painful dimension of the work of Christ isn't only for rebels. It's also for followers of Jesus. And that's what I'm going to be speaking on here. Now, a verse that really helps flesh out what this might mean is I regard it as being one of the most profound verses in the entire Bible. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. I want to read verse 11 through 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. It really relates to, I think, this prophecy of Simeon's. Here the author says, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. The rest he's referring to here is the Sabbath rest, the eternal Sabbath rest of God. He's referring to heaven, in other words. Let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish. Now here's what it means to make every effort. He talks about the Word of God. He says, For the Word of God is alive and active. Now remember, Jesus is the, he's called the Word of God. He's the incarnation of the, of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word of God. So the, the Word of God refers both to the incarnate Jesus and also to the written Word. And now what we're told is that Jesus isn't just some historical fact, and the Word of God isn't just some book. It's alive! It's alive and it's active. And here's what it does when it's alive and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and being that sharp, it penetrates or it pierces even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow, which is to say it judges the thoughts and attitudes. The term there could be uh, translated intentions or disposition, the intentions of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. So he's talking here about how the word of God reveals hearts. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered, revealed, exposed, and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, put on your thinking caps. I want to I just chew on this a second. The author here is talking to disciples, not talking to rebels. He's talking to disciples. And he's saying that there is a distinct, piercing, penetrating, cutting ministry that the Word of God has that's unique to believers. It's, it, it, it's supposed to happen to believers. Now, to flesh out what that cutting is about, he uses three sets of terms that parallel uh, one another and that contrast with one another. He says that the the, the Word of God uh, will divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow, thoughts and attitudes, or thoughts and intentions. And the way this passage is structured suggests that He's, he wants us to draw analogies here. In other words, what the author is saying is that soul is to spirit what joints are to marrow, what thoughts are to intention. You see the analogy? See how that follows? Now let's, 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 let's think about this for a little bit. Joint, a joint is what holds a bone, some bones together. It, joints are what hold your skeletal frame together. But marrow is what makes a human bone a human bone. It's the essence of the bone. Joint refers to the togetherness of the bones. Marrow is the essence of the bone. So also, our soul is the togetherness of the person. Our spirit is the essence of the person. 
That also refers to, uh, to uh, thoughts and intentions. Our thoughts, our expectations, our memories, our, all those things are how you experience yourself as a, to, as, as a united human. You are the togetherness of your thoughts. But there's something deeper in you, about you, than your thoughts or than your experiences. And that is what the author's calling your spirit. Your spirit. So we could see or think of the soul. And the word there is, is, is a suke. We get the word psyche from it. Psychology. It refers to the mind. It's your personality. Your soul is the togetherness of your, uh, uh, of, of, of your person. It's, it's the united self. It's the way you experience yourself. The, the togetherness of your experienced self. But your spirit is more fundamental to you than your experienced self. It is who you really are as defined by God. If you're a kingdom person, the minute you surrender your life to Christ, at the core of your being, the marrow of your person, if you will, you are born again. The Holy Spirit unites with your spirit. And here the Bible declares you holy and spotless and says all these wonderful things about you. But that's not necessarily how you experience yourself or how you think yourself, you see? Uh, th- 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 that's about your, your soul. Now, normally these two things are, are woven together. Uh, so much so that, that, that we don't usually distinguish body and soul. In fact, the Bible doesn't usually distinguish body and soul. That distinction is usually quite irrelevant. But this passage suggests, and 1 Thessalonians 5.23 suggests, that we're made of three distinct dimensions, not just two. We are body, soul, and spirit. And the distinction between soul and spirit is your spirit is the essence of who you are, while your soul, or your suke, is how you experience yourself, or how you think yourself as being. Normally, these things are all wrapped up together, so much so that we can't tell them apart. But this passage is telling us that this word of God the spoken word of God, the truth of God is able to divide, to distinguish between these, these, these pairs. It can distinguish between what is soul about you and what is spirit about you, what is true and what is false. It could, in the same way, by analogy, it could divide uh, joints and marrow. It could distinguish between them. And it can distinguish between thoughts and intentions. Normally in life, here's why this is so significant. Those two things are not in perfect agreement. There's a, a, an incongruity between who we really are as defined by God and how we think ourselves to be as defined by our thoughts and experiences and things of that sort. Who you think and experience yourself as being is not necessarily in line with who you really are. And therefore, how you think is not always in line with, with what you want to do at the core of your being. That's why the Word of God can divide thoughts and, and, and intentions. The word judge there, criminal, simply means to distinguish between. This is the Romans 7 uh, dilemma, where in, in Romans 7, Paul says, gosh, you know, the, the thing that I want to do in the core of my being, in the depths of my being, I want this, but I never end up doing it. In the core of my being, I want to avoid some things, but that's what I end up doing. Can anyone here relate to him? <laughs> we all can, because see, there's a conflict. There's, uh, at the depths of our being, we want one thing, but, uh, but in the terms of how we think and experience ourselves, we want something different. And the reason why there's that contrast is this. Your soul, your thought, your think, your psyche, suke, 
is formed by your past, your upbringing. It's a neurological chemical reaction that's got installed triggers that get reacting, uh, they react to various stimuli in your environment. And, and that has been conditioned by your mom, by your dad, by the media, by past experiences, by the boyfriends, by girlfriends, by uh, things you've seen on TV, by things that you've read. All those things condition our brain. And much of it in this fallen war zone world that we live in is a lie. So our soul is largely a false self. Whereas your spirit, when you surrender to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, your spirit now is the truth of who you are as defined by God. God, like in the, it says in Genesis 1, God in the beginning, he spoke. He says, let there be light. And there was light. When God speaks, reality occurs. So also God speaks into your life. When you surrender to him, he says, you are my child. You are holy. You are blameless. You are spotless. And his speaking creates a reality. So you've got this new reality in the core of your being. You've got new marrow running through you, if you will. But see, your brain doesn't automatically change because you surrendered to Christ. Your brain still goes on the autopilot that was installed by your upbringing and by watching this show and having these experiences or whatever. So there's a conflict often between who we really are and how we experience ourselves as being. Uh, in the core of your being, if you're a genuine kingdom person, the dome in which God is king has been established in your life. If you're a genuine kingdom person, at the core of your being, and it may be way down there, you know, be, beneath consciousness, but the core of your being, you want to live for God. Uh, you've got Jesus' DNA way down there in the core of your being. Uh, you you want to live on the edge. There's a party that wants to get radical, isn't there? There's a party that wants to live in outrageous love, isn't there? There's a part of you that wants to live in right relationship with God and with other people. There's a part of you that just knows that, that, that because of Jesus Christ, you were destined for greatness. There's a part of you that just does not want to ever settle for mediocrity and doesn't want to just condone lethargy and, 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 and condone sin in your life. There's a part of you that wants to just seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness there's a part of you that just wants to manifest the holiness and the beauty of Calvary to all people at all times. There's a part of you that wants to be utterly, 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 radically, completely, and exhaustively sold out to Jesus Christ. That's your marrow. That's in the core of your being. But there's this other part of you that's conformed to the pattern of this world, Romans 12, 2. It's conditioned by what Paul calls the flesh. It's that neurological chemical reaction that we call a brain. It's your suke. And it's addicted to sameness. It's addicted to comfort. It's addicted to pain avoidance. It likes the middle of the road. It likes just fitting in with the herd. It likes to go with the crowd. It likes just to, you know, just kind of do the, the mediocre American religion thing where you never rock the boat. And, and it likes the American dream. And it just likes per, per pursuing the carnal self. So it disagrees with your spirit. There's a conflict between those two things. There's a warfare sometimes between those two things. And see, the Word of God is alive and active. It is a sword. My name is Inigo Mentoya. <laughs> you killed my father. Prepare to die. And um, <laughs> we've had a good morning, haven't we? <laughs> and see, God... It, the, when when the, tr the truth comes and it, and, and it comes into our life and it's sharp, two-edged. It cuts up and down. And when it comes into our life, what it does is it distinguishes for us that which is normally all wrapped up. And it says, here's the, here's the truth of God's word that creates reality, comes into our life and says, this is true, this is false. This needs to stay. 
This needs to go. This is, comes from me. This came from your mom. Or this came from your dad. Or that came from the world. And it distinguishes between the two in order to cut out all the soul pollution that we've got in order to let the truth of who we are in Christ be more clearly and more perfectly manifested. The Word of God wants to do surgery on us. Now, this isn't a surgery that he does with rebels. Uh, you know, it's a different role that he does with rebels. But to those who follow him, he gets out the scalpel and, and the knife, the sword, and he says, okay, let's start carving out stuff. Let's start having an extreme makeover. Let's start coming under surgery. Because it's like God's like Michelangelo. I, 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 I'm told that when Michelangelo would look at a, a, a rock, uh, he, he, would, he could see the sculpture in the rock. And he said, it wasn't that I'm, I'm creating a sculpture. Rather, I'm just getting rid of every part of the rock that's not part of the sculpture. So also God looks at us and, and, and he sees who we already are. Like Michelangelo saw that the, the, the David was already in the rock. He just needed to free the David from the rock. You know, free the sculpture from the rock by cutting off every non-David part of the rock. So also God says, I see you as you really are in Christ. I, I see you filled with the Spirit. I see you just living in joy and living in peace. And I see you living in outrageous love. I see who you really are, holy, spotless, blameless, destined for eternal fellowship with me. Let's cut off everything else. Everything that's not consistent. Everything you inherited from the world. All of that pollution. And he wants to do major surgery on our life. And our job, our job in this is to simply let him do it. And say, Lord, uh, do your surgery, do your surgery, have your way. And the way that looks in our life, when we, when we let the surgeon have his way with us, the way that looks in terms of our experience is, it's called, as I said last week, repentance. As God does work in our life, and the truth comes in, and we, all, we, we see something we didn't see before, the truth of God's word comes in, starts cutting things up. As we see that, our job is simply to say, cut away, which means we turn away, and we walk in a different direction. That's all the word repentance means. Doesn't mean that it always is emotional or any of that stuff. It just means we make a decision to turn. And we walk now in the truth instead of this pollution stuff that we were walking in previously. It's about repentance. And it's an ongoing thing in our life. God always has more things to carve away from us in order to let the truth of who we are in our spirit be more clearly known. God may be wanting to cut away lies in your life, lies that you've believed. All sorts of things that we just assume to be true that are not true, uh, that are installed as part of our autopilot. And there comes times where the Word of God, just, it come, can come from a sermon, it can come through a book, it can just come by the Spirit of God, but the truth hits you and all of a sudden you realize that you've been walking in a lie. Last week a person came, out, came up to me after the service and said, you know what, it was just bawling, uh, it was beautiful, uh, and he was saying, um, I, I, I've had to repent. Because I realize I have been walking in self-loathing and thinking that was pious. Just loathing myself. Just, you know, that somehow, and, and that there's a kind of false piety out there that does that. Like, I am altogether worthless, so there's nothing, there's not one good thing about me. You know, and, and that's supposed to be complimenting God. And this person often realized, see, the word came to him and said, you know, you are, you are, you sit, it reveals to him that he's, He's saying, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm lowly, I'm a maggot, I'm worthless, I'm doo-doo. And God says, you know what, here's what's true about you. Uh, wherever you got that from, it didn't come from me because I say that you're lovely and I say you're precious and I say you've got unsurpassable worth and I say that, 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 that uh, you know, you're, you're holy and blameless. You're anything but doo-doo. And now his job is to turn, turn from that doo-doo thinking 
This is called Christianese. <laughs> Kaka. Uh, you, turn, you turn from that, that, that you know, doo-doo thinking, and now his job is to commit to walking in this new surgical self, to walking and, and to think, to think the truth of who he is and to speak the truth of who he is and to live the truth of who he is and to commit to that, you see? You turn from it. So God wants to cut away lies in our life. The Word of God comes and wants to cut away sin in our life. It's an ongoing thing, constantly under surgery. Uh, things that, you know, you, 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 you go for a long time, you don't get convicted about, and all of a sudden, the Word of God comes, and God says, it's time to do surgery on that. Uh, you've grown to the point now where, you know, you used to, you used to perhaps, he says, uh, you know, that, that little stealing that you do, that no one really notices, and you don't think it's really a big deal. But you know what? I want to make that a big deal because that is blocking some of the things. It's just not part of my sculpture here. And, and you're better than that. See, the Word of God comes and says, you're, you're thinking and you're speaking and you're living in a way that is beneath you. I'm calling you a king's kid, and king's kids don't steal. So even though, you know, the boss doesn't notice it, stop it and convicts you about it. And your job then is to say, I repent, and I turn from it. You may feel emotional about it, remorse or whatever, but maybe not. Either way, you make a decision, and you're saying, God, do your sculpting work in my life. Maybe that God convicts you about the way you use your mouth, about the gossip. That never bothered you before. But see, here's the thing. Just because something didn't bother you two years ago doesn't mean it shouldn't bother you now because you're a different person now than you were two years ago. It's called growing up. It's called growth. And so God lets something slide for a season, and then he says, now is the time to work on this. And the Word of God comes, and our job is to say, to let him, to say Lord, have your way. Just get out of the sculpture and start cutting away. Maybe, maybe God starts convicting about attitudes that you have about behaviors that you have, about destructive behaviors uh, that, that, that are going on in your life or, or about the way you treat other people or about your, your sexual immorality or about your judgmentalism. And, and maybe it's stuff that you never even noticed before. You just assumed it was okay. But see, the Word of God is alive and active. And, and He's always wanting to refine us and to grow us and, and to, to get us to manifest more about what is already true about us in the Spirit. He wants to bring congruity between our spirit and our soul. Our thoughts and our intentions. And so the surgeon gets out his knife and starts carving away. And our job is to say, have your way, Lord. And repent and walk in it. Sometimes uh, God, he confronts the lies. He confronts the sin. Sometimes he just wants to grow new stuff in us. The word of God comes and says, okay, to carve out something that I'm seeing in your life here, I I want you to get involved in a new spiritual discipline. And we've got to be okay with him doing that. The way you prayed two years ago maybe is not the the prayer that's adequate now. You're in a different place. And God wants to do more surgery. He calls out stuff in us. He may may, uh, say to you, as he's been saying to me recently, I want more prayer from you. I want more prayer. And you start feeling convicted about maybe the haphazard way you prayed. Maybe your half hour before was was adequate. Now he says, I want want an hour. And there's, in your spirit, you know that's true. Lately, he's been telling me, uh, that uh, he wants the first half hour of every day. Praying throughout the day is really good. I want the, I want the cream of the crop. You're at your best when you get, first get out of bed. I want the first half hour intercession before me, on your face before me, and that's before coffee. Sometimes God gets that specific. He, I am allowed to brush my teeth, but then I've got to, thankfully, even God doesn't like morning breath. And, uh, and, and then he says, I want you to be on your fa- first half hour before coffee. 
Now, the reason, I think, is because he knows what I know, now that he's revealed it to me, that when I get up and I walk downstairs and I get my coffee and I walk back upstairs, by the time I'm upstairs, my brain is already going on all these things I can be doing, the book project I want to do and the thing I want to read and, and all the day, and it's all, already it's too busy. But if I flop out of bed and just brush my teeth a little bit and then go over and lay on the ground before him and start praying, see, now, now there's a focus there. And he says, I want the first half hour. Now, that's not for everybody, but that, 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 that's for me. And we've got to be open. Okay, he's, he's doing surgery. He's calling out a new thing. Maybe God will call out uh, that he wants you to fast uh, for a, a day or, or, or for a meal. Or for some, maybe we're in the middle of Lenten season now, which is always associated with this sort of surgical uh, thing before God. Maybe he's going to call you on a couple-day fast. And you've never done that before. Your flesh will resist this. Because your flesh is addicted to sameness. Your flesh is addicted to comfort. Your flesh is addicted to uh, pain avoidance. That's your, your, to a large degree, all of our suke, our psyches are like that. But God calls, he speaks in your spirit and says, okay, I, I, I want more here. I want to call out that thing that has been there. Maybe God calls, uh, calls you to have a, a new kind of attitude towards your neighbor. And notice that your neighbor is hurting right now. And, and to be committed as a spiritual discipline to serving your neighbor for, for a season. Sometimes God just, the word of God comes and just lands a new conviction on you. That's not about whether it's right or wrong in and of itself. It can just be a neutral thing, but he wants you to be disciplined because our lives tend to be so undisciplined. And to the extent that they're not disciplined, we block the flow of the spirit of God in our life. So God can do things like this. I want you, he could say, to cut back on your coffee. You know, it's, it's okay to have coffee, but you're getting a little too dependent on that. Or he might even say, for a period of time, I want you to give up coffee altogether. Just talked to a person a couple of days ago. For, during Lent, he's just decided he's supposed to give up coffee altogether. I am so glad God didn't call me to do that. Uh, n- not that I need it. I'm not, you know, but I, I can quit any time. I just choose, choose not to. But, but you know, so God, God, God may call... We serve a radical God, and he may, part of his, he knows what you need, and he may say, I want you to give that up altogether. And the flesh goes, no, it's not fair. No one else has to do that. Why do I have to do it? It's not fair. And your job is to go, shut up. God wins. He may, he may call, you know, he may put it on your heart. You know, you, you, you've, it's the one thing to have a, a glass of wine now and then. They relax, that's fine, but you're getting to need it too much. Uh, you know, you, you're thinking about it too much. I want you for a period of time, or maybe he might say permanently to, to cut back or even give up on, on alcohol. He may say, you know, that occasional cigar you like, that, that, you know, that, that's one thing, but you're starting to, to, to really crave that, and you're getting in bondage to that. And so for a period of time, or maybe permanently, he might say, I want you to give that all up. And our job is to let the surgeon do his work. And when he carves out something, say, I turn from that and I'm now walking in a new way. And the flesh always complains because the flesh is whiny, really childish, toddler, throw a tantrum, get all met and mad and messed up. And, but our job is to say, God, God, uh, uh, your, your word rightly divides the soul and spirit. And we turned from that polluted part of our soul to manifest the truth of the spirit. God may say, you know what, you're watching too much TV. It's, you know, it's okay to enjoy a show now and then, but I want you, he might say even temporarily, or maybe even, I've heard of this happening, permanently give up the TV. I want you to quit the TV and, and, and use that time uh, with, with your husband. <laughs> and we're all going, please, God, no, no, God, please. Okay, I'll give it up, but not 24. Okay, just let me keep 24. Please, please, I got to keep 24. <laughs> 
You know what I'm saying? So, so he, 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 he bursts new conviction in us. He might even say something really crazy like, I want you uh, to give up meat. Uh, quit for meat. That's what God did to me. And uh, see, there's a party that goes, well, no fair. You know, Jesus at least got to have fish and no one else has that. But you see, here's the thing. God may ask or require something of you that he doesn't require of other people because you, you are unique unto yourself. That's why you can never posture yourself as being more righteous because you gave up something that other people don't give up. Knock it off. That is so childish. Read Romans 14. If God asks you to give it up, that's about you and him and your job is to obey. No ifs, ands, and buts. And if other people are, are free to have that that's, that, that's between them and God. We have to answer to God on the basis of what he asks of us. Our job is simply to say, God, whatever it is, whatever you want to cut, whatever you want to burn away, uh, Lord God, just, just have your way. And we walk in that. Now, I promise you that if you will obey the Lord when he comes to you, whether it's about a lie that you believe or whether it's about a sin that you've condoned or whether it's just about a new growth era of your life, if you will obey Something will be birthed in you that otherwise would never be birthed in you. There will be a reward for this. When I say reward, I don't mean reward in a Santa Claus sense. Like if you're a good girl, Santa Claus will bring you a toy. It's not like God's got little carrots out there. He says, okay, give up the coffee and I'll give you a blessing. It's not like that. The reward is rather like this. It's the reward that we would mean when we say, you know, if you stick with your diet, you'll continue to lose weight. The reward for sticking with your diet is you lose weight. Or the reward for exercising once in a while is you'll live longer and you'll have a healthier heart. Or the reward for, for spending some time with your spouse is that you'll have a happier marriage, a happier marriage and therefore you'll be happier. The reward that I'm speaking of is the reward of living in congruity with reality. The reward of living in congruity with reality. The punishment for disobeying the law of gravity when you're skydiving is that you'll die. The reward for using a parachute is that you'll have fun. It's that sort of thing. God wants to build congruity between our soul and spirit. And every time there's more congruity between our soul and spirit, as we let God carve out everything in our soul that is not consistent with our spirit, the reward of that is always a blessing. Uh, it can be a new insight. So much of the time, we don't see things, don't understand things because our perception is, uh, is polluted. We see with our heart. We see what our heart allows us to see. And, and sometimes people are just, uh, there's, there's genuine academic questions that are good and puzzles that people have, and that's wonderful. But sometimes people who have chronic doubts and chronic questions and nothing ever makes sense, it's because there's some pollution that is there. And the Word of God wants to come and say, if you'll just let me carve this out of your life, it will open up a new way of seeing. When you, when you submit to God and yield to God, that you're now in a position where He can begin to give you revelatory things that you otherwise couldn't get. The Christian worldview begins to make sense. Scripture begins to make sense. Uh, you know, ideas become in, in congruity with one another. Uh, you have a new perception. You see things you, you otherwise wouldn't see. Maybe you see beauty where you didn't see beauty before. You begin to actually see the worth of other people. However it is, there's, it's always, there's always a reward when you obey the Lord. There's a reward in terms of, of, of a deepened experience with God. You experience God more richly when you submit and let him carve out the stuff in your life that, that shouldn't be there. Uh, it's like a person I, I, I talked to a couple years ago who said, well, once they finally were able to quit smoking, about a month later they began to taste food. And it's like, man, it tastes good. 
And that glass of wine tasted really good. I forgot that food tastes so good. That's why often people who quit smoking put on weights. All of a sudden, food begins to taste good, and they haven't had it for a while. But see, it, it, it's the same way that happens because uh, smoking dulls your taste buds. So also, the lies we believe and the sin we condone and the lack of discipline in our life, it dulls us to the things of God. But when we let the surgeon do his work in our life and we turn from stuff and walk in a new way, you'll find that you begin to, you, you begin to experience God more deeply than you ever did before. And it's a trillion, trillion times worth the pain of what you had to give up. Uh, there, you begin to sense the presence of God more than you did before. You begin to, uh, God becomes more real to you, more alive to you. Uh, you begin to really sense his love, his love for you. Begin to experience it more deeply. You begin to experience love for other people more deeply. You come alive. You, you wake up. You see the world different. You experience the world different. All because you let yourself come under the great surgeon as he does his extreme makeover on you. Another area, the last one I'll mention is that when we submit to the great surgeon and let him carve out what needs to be carved out, when we repent and when we break before God, when we get humble before God and say, God, you are God, I am not, do what you want to do. When we have that attitude and we let him do his work, see, now we're in a position where God can begin to use us in ways he never otherwise could use us. Uh, we are individually and we are collectively like a faucet and uh, that the water of God's word wants to run, flow through. But to the extent that we give in to our, our, our fleshy addiction to sameness and never want to move out of our comfort zone, and so to the extent that we, we, we live in the lies that we inherited and condone the sin that God is now convicting us of and refuse to go in the new growth areas of our life, to that degree we clog the flow. We constipate the Spirit of God, if I can put it that way. Uh, we, we just clog everything up. Jesus said that whoever believes in me, John seven thirty nine, whoever believes in me, out of their belly should flow, shall rivers of living water. It's a gusher kind of a thing. But see, to the degree that we hang on to the lies and hang on to the sin and, and refuse to get discipline in our life, to that degree, put a big cork in it. And we just bottle the whole thing up. It's still there. The Holy Spirit resides in, in our spirit and it wants to come out in every possible way. But our suke, to the extent that it's polluted and we don't let the Word of God actively distinguish it from spirit and carve out what needs to be carved out, to that degree, it's just all bottled up inside of us. All bottled up inside of us. God wants to manifest himself in your life and to us as a group in a supernatural way. We're to be the body of Christ, which is simply means we're supposed to be a replica of, of what Jesus was like in his incarnate form. And when Jesus went around, there was always signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Uh, demonstrating that the dome in which God is king has come to this earth. And so he demonstrates it by uh, bringing what will be true in the future and manifesting it right now. Part of what's going to be true in the future is that there'll be no more sickness and no more disease and no more people who have legs that don't work and no more cancer and no more AIDS. So part of the job of the kingdom of God is to manifest that all right now. That's what healing is all about. That's why healing is called a sign. It signifies what is coming. It's not just for the benefit of the person here and now, though it is that, but it's a proclamation that God is real, that the kingdom is real, that heaven is coming. And so we want... God wants to send forth his spirit in ways where people are healed, where, where, where tumors disappear. Praise God. Last week, someone told me, there's a young lady I prayed for about two months ago, came up, she was kind of freaking out because they discovered a tumor in her brain. 
and it was very, you know, very scary for her, as you can understand. I just found out last week that she had gone down to the Mayo Clinic. We prayed for her. She went down to the Mayo Clinic, and they have no evidence of a tumor. None. It's not there. Amen. Yes. And see, God, that, that's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's mag- magnificent. But that ought to be kind of the norm. Uh, you know, it, 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 I want to see God showing up like that in people's lives on every level, including a f- the physical level. Because we serve a real God who's a healing God, and part of what he died for on Calvary was to bring healing to us, freedom from the enemy's bondage in every possible way. Do you want that? The stallion is coming. Do you want that? Do you want to see God pour out like that? There's a price tag. Not a price tag in the sense that we earn it, that we buy it, but a price tag in the sense that we've got to be aligned for that to happen. For the water to flow like that, the faucet's got to get unclogged, and what clogs it is all the pollution in our lives. And the surgeon is saying, if only you knew what I could do in your life individually and as a corporate whole, if you'll just put yourself on the chopping block and let me carve, let me start cutting. This is the piercing, painful work of Christ in our life. It's painful, our flesh resists it, but it's beautiful when it's done. It's, it's, <laughs> amen. It's hard sometimes because, you know, I, our, our, our suitcase likes sameness. It likes staying in that same, you know, the, the way we've always done it. We're comfortable. We don't like to be moved out of our comfort zone. We like to avoid pain. And so it's hard to just say, God, whatever you will, it's hard. It takes a lot of trust. You know, when I, I a couple of years ago, I had, I, I get these growths once in a while, and I had a big growth on my lip, a cancerous thing, and they had to take it out, had to take out a third of my lip. And the, the, the doctor said, he's a very good plastic surgeon, but he says, um, here's what I'm going to shoot for. Here's what I'm thinking you're going to look like uh, when, you, when you regain consciousness. I, and I said, thinking what I'm going to look like? <laughs> he says, well, see, we don't know how much we got to take out till we go in there, so I don't know what you're going like, to look like when you come to. Now, that's not a happy thought. Uh, you know, you don't want to go to sleep on that one, but I have to trust him. And so it is with us. We have to trust that though it may hurt coming out and we don't know for sure exactly what's, how far this thing's going to go. You know, for all I know, I'm going to end up a missionary in Tanzania or something like that. But you know what? We got to trust him. And when he does his work, it's a thing of beauty. He's doing an extreme makeover and he's really, really, really good at it. And, and he wants to carve out a new you. And there's so much we miss out on because we don't imagine it ahead of time. I'm just saying to us, God wants to break forth, and I think in a ways that we've never seen before, but it all hangs on us individually and then collectively breaking before God. The master surgeon wants to do his work. We're going to have a time to do that. I'll explain what that's going to involve here in a few minutes. First, we're going to worship the Lord uh, by taking up an offering. Could I call the ushers forward? You know, in some ways, just think about this, an offering is a perfect symbolic expression of everything I just said. That's why in the Old Testament, the offering was the center of worship. Um, someone has said that you can, te- you can tell your own values, what you really value, not by what you think and by what you say, but by how you spend. That's, that's kind of true. And so before the Lord, you know, we're to put our finances and say, God, this belongs to you. Lord, do what you will. Lead us and guide us. And it's always about sacrifice. You know, we always say this. I, I'm not quite done yet preaching. Uh, just give me another second here. We always say the kingdom looks like Calvary, right? That's a slogan of ours. The kingdom always looks like Calvary. 
Jesus dying for those who crucified him while praying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's true. If it doesn't look like Calvary, it's just religion. It's just church. It's just a Christian thing. But the kingdom always looks like, like, like Jesus. The kingdom always looks like Calvary in another sense, and that is it always involves sacrifice. Always. If you want to have an Easter experience where something new is birthed in your life, you've got to go through Calvary. And that's about the Word of God cutting stuff out of our life. And God always wants us to be moving deeper and deeper into kingdom experiences. Will you submit yourself before God and let him do his work? Just let him do his work. Let him carve out what he wants to carve out, and then we just repent. So, Father, right now we give this offering to you, and we just pray tremendous, a tremendous outpouring of your spirit here, Lord, as we're going to move into a time of ascribing worth to you by what we sing, by how we give, and then by how we allow you to take stuff out of our life as we repent, Lord God. Holy Spirit, invade us. Holy Spirit, flow over us. Holy Spirit, overwhelm us. Holy Spirit, do what you want to do for this next half hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.